We're continuing our summer series on Timothy and Titus, passing the baton and entrusting the gospel to a next generation, to be a church that follows Jesus and prioritizing disciple-making. As we do that, we get ready to open God's Word, and uh, I want to just draw our attention to the importance and the meaning of this act in and of itself. I didn't grow up in church, maybe you did, but one of the things we do at Kenwood is we stand when God's Word is read, because this book is, is unlike any other book. These are God's words, the living God. And so we stand to, to honor God. You stand in antiquity in the presence of a king. So that's one of the reasons why we do that. We give our attention to it. Uh, I didn't grow up listening to preaching. Maybe you did. Uh, but if you didn't, before we look at the text, I want to just explain briefly, like, what are we doing up here and why? And uh, I want to put before you a quote from John Stott about preaching, the act of preaching itself which is the exposition of Scripture. And when I was a college student, I'd been a Christian for just a couple of years, and I heard John Stott preach. And actually, that, I heard him. I didn't see him. The church was so crowded that we were only able to fit into the church kitchen and look at a brown speaker on the wall. But I heard preaching like I'd never heard before. And he preached on the cross of Christ. And he preached with clarity and depth. And it really altered a trajectory of my life, that one sermon. And uh, John Stott wrote a number of books, was a leading Christian uh, in the 20th century. And he said this about the act of preaching. He said, to expound scripture is to open up the inspired text. That's important. This isn't just a regular book. This is an inspired text. It's to open it up with such faithfulness and sensitivity. Uh, that's my part. Uh, it takes me usually 12 to 15 hours in the text before this moment. And I'm pursuing a faithful reading and hearing of it and being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I'm asking what's the text say, but I'm also listening to what is the Holy Spirit speaking to all of us. And he says to do that in such a way that God's voice is heard. Amen? And that's true for all of us. So I don't really want you to listen to my voice or anyone else who's preaching up here. I want you to hear God's voice. And that God's voice is heard, and then here's the really exciting part. It's not just to hear God's voice, but that his people obey him. Whenever God speaks, it's a call for us to obey him. So that's what's happening up here right now. Are we ready? All right, I've done my part, I'm ready. And so let's, uh, let's listen to, let's open the text. So keep the scriptures open in front of you. And when you come, you should have the expectation that I'm going to hear God. And that I want to be willing to obey him. Okay, so the passage that we heard is a passage from Paul writing to Timothy. And it's a passage that emphasizes disciple making. In verse 1, he tells Timothy, my child, this bond of affection that we talked about last Sunday. He tells him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Did you know that grace makes you strong? Grace makes you strong. That when God's mercy and his grace 
fills you, you become strong in a godly way. You become resistant to temptation. You become emboldened to share Christ. You become strong enough to look the devil in the eye and say, I have no interest in that. And you are strong in the extending God's grace. He tells Timothy to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Grace, one of the most important Christian words of all. God's favor that comes to us in Christ. I learned from John Bascom, one of the Kenwood heroes, that, that grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that a great way of remembering grace? And the heart of this passage is Paul's counsel to Timothy about how to make disciples. And so there are five things that I want you to notice and see in this text uh, that I've noticed. And number one is the priority to prioritize disciple making. And this is the charge that comes in verse 2. He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Paul's been saying it many times before many other people, the content of the gospel, the trustworthy Christian teaching in Christ, he says to Timothy, and the verb entrust is an imperative, to entrust this, to commend it, to set it before, to do the hard work of getting the content of the Christian faith built into the minds and hearts of other people. And to do that and build it into the minds and hearts of other people, we call this discipleship or disciple making, and notice that this is to be entrusted to faithful people who will be able to teach others. Discipleship is not a one-way road. It's not a religious cul-de-sac. Amen? You don't get discipled and just go live in a cottage somewhere. Discipleship is having the life of Christ reproduced in you, so you reproduce that life in someone else. Amen? Now, uh, I'm not a grandparent yet. There are a number of grandparents at Kenwood, and I love watching the joy on the face of a new grandparent. Have you ever noticed that? It's really, there's a certain joy when someone gets married. Someone gets engaged. There's a certain glow. There's a certain joy and excitement uh, when a child is born. Uh, we've got one of the we've, we've got a new new life at Kenwood, and it's it's her first Sunday in church this morning. Right now, it's wonderful, and there's joy in that. But there is a very unique joy when you are a grandparent and you see your children's children, and there is a unique joy in disciple making when you see someone that you have uh, invested the life of Christ in, and then they are investing the life of Christ in someone else. Amen? So spiritual grandchildren is where it's at. And that's part of the, what he's setting before Timothy here clearly. There are four generations, actually, in this, in this verse. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful people that he is investing in, and then he envisions those who they will then teach or disciple. And when we do this... We obey Jesus, amen, which is always a good thing. Jesus has command, what we call the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. And we obey him when we do this. And obeying Christ brings lasting joy. We not only obey Jesus' words, we also fulfill the end-time vision of Israel's prophets. Now, some of you know my wife's an Old Testament scholar, so we get, we get juiced up at my house when 
end time visions of Israelite prophets come true. And, and if, they, if your house doesn't get revved up about that, it should. Okay, and the end time vision of Isaiah chapter 2, look at this, it's incredible. He says, it will come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills, and look at it, all nations, all of them, will stream to it. And many people will come, and they will say to themselves, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? So he can teach us his ways, so we can walk in his paths. Israel's prophets looked forward to the day when all of the nations would stream to God and say, disciple us! Amen! You see why we get excited about that at my house? That's an exciting vision. And when you are discipling someone, this is coming true. And you're obeying Jesus. Now, this is not easy. It requires dedication, focus, and sacrifice. And Paul says to Timothy, let me give you three pictures of this. It's hard work. The first picture is like a soldier in training. And some of you have served in the military. And you know that being in the military requires dedication, focus, and training. And he says that as a good soldier of Jesus, don't get mixed up in civilian pursuits. Your goal as a soldier is to please the one who enlisted you. Amen? So don't get tangled up in sort of disciple making, but a bunch of other worldly pursuits. Be focused. Please the one who has recruited you, that is Christ Jesus. The second image is of an athlete in training. And um, didn't Pastor John do a great job on that kids video? That was awesome. And um, Kyle drove the chase vehicle and Sarah uh, held the camera. And uh, I love running and I'm inspired by runners. And probably the most inspiring runner that, that I know is Elliot Kipchoge. He's the Kenyan marathoner. And Elliot Kipchoge... In October uh, 2019, in Vienna, Austria, became the first man ever, ever, to run a marathon in less than two hours. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, let me just break that down and say that that's holding a sub four minute and 34 second pace for 26.2 miles. If you want to appreciate how fast that is, then you should take the Kipchoge Challenge. You can look this up online and try yourself just to run at that pace for like one minute. You'll find your heart rate going into the stratosphere. And, you will, and it's, it is staggering to think of holding that pace for two hours. An athlete, though, requires focus and training. There were years of training that went in to competing in that way. The third picture is of a farmer who's a hard worker. Everyone whom I've ever known personally that grew up on a farm or worked on a farm knows how to work hard. They get up early. They stay up late. The average farmer works 70 hours a week. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think 40 hours a week sounds like a part-time job. And ha farmers work hard. And he tells Timothy, 
with these three pictures to work hard at discipleship, prioritize it, and invest in it, and reproduce it. It's the hardworking farmer who reaps the crops. So let's, what's God telling us now, just in this moment? He's telling us to prioritize disciple-making and to work hard at it. And then we'll reap a great reward. Secondly, in our text, is to focus on the gospel. Discipleship is about building both an understanding of the gospel and also a willingness to live the gospel out. In verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David. That's the gospel in one verse. I love it. The gospel in one verse is Jesus is the Messiah. He's raised from the dead. He's from the line of David. Oh, by the way, that just scoops up the whole Old Testament narrative. Again, joy in the Palmer household. That's the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the promised son of David, that he has died for our sins and he's raised from the dead. He gives atonement for sin and new life in him. And as the gospel goes out, sometimes there's a hostile response. Have you noticed that? Sometimes people are not interested in the gospel. Sometimes people are hostile to the gospel. I think back to myself. Don't you wish sometimes you could talk to yourself earlier in your life? Do you ever? Am I the only one who thinks that? When I was in high school, I was an arrogant lad. I, I was. And I was given a Bible, first Bible that I ever received. It was a Gideon New Testament with that onion skin paper, green cover. I opened it up. I didn't make it out of Matthew chapter 1. All these names. And I thought to myself in my arrogance, come on. Why, is, why does everybody read this book? And a, my, a friend said, well, just keep reading. So I kept reading, and I made it through the Sermon on the Mount. And my next arrogant statement on the Bible was, no one could ever live like this. And I didn't realize how true that was, <laughs> that we actually can't do that on our own. And that's why we need forgiveness in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is writing bound with chains. He's writing and with chains. He's accused as a criminal. And yet he says, I love this, that the word of God is not bound. God's word, when it gets released in the world, when it gets taken up into the human mind, the human heart, it's not bound. It, 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 it affects you. It brings change to your life. And so Paul, despite his suffering, says, I'm, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And don't get scared by that word elect. It just means chosen. It's first used of Abraham in the Old Testament. And it just means that these are the people whom God has acted and taken the initiative and called them to save them. If you have believed in Christ, you are chosen. And uh, it's, it's not some mysterious, vague thing. It's language that's precious and valuable to say, uh, God says, these are my people. And his people say, he is our God. And Paul says, I, I endure everything for, for their sake, that they would have salvation in Christ. So, number one, prioritize disciple making. Number two, focus on the gospel. Number three, pass on the faith with memorable lines. In verses 11, 12, and 13, we have something like an early Christian poem. It might have been a song or a hymn. 
But in these verses, we have a very memorable kind of shorthand for the Christian life. Look at it. For the scholarly minded among us, pay close attention to the verbs. There's something exciting going on. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, what tense is that? That's past tense. If we've died with him, we will live with him. There's a future promise. If we die with Christ, and you know baptism is a signal of uniting with Christ in his death. Jesus' word to follow him is to deny yourself, take up your cross. It's a death to self-image. That's why sometimes ourselves is like resistant to following Christ. But that death to self means that we will live with him. The next verb says if we endure, and that's present tense. If we are enduring, persevering, then there's a future promise. We will reign with him. That's an exciting thought. Have you thought about that? When Jesus returns and evil is banished and he rules and reigns forever in righteousness that we reign with him? That's exciting. Then we have a future and This is slightly uh, obscured in the English translation, but if we deny him, that's a future. If we were to do that, if we were to abandon or deny him, he would deny us. And that's a warning. It's a sobering word. It's an echo of Jesus' teaching. If you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father. If you deny me, I'll deny you. And then the last line of this early Christian poem And verse 13 is an encouragement to us on our journey. If we are faithless, that's present tense. That is moments where we don't act as we would at our best. Do you have those moments? I have those moments. Sometimes I'm at my best in Christ and my eyes are on Jesus. And then other times my faith will uh, weaken or waver or temptation will seem promising. And yet... At the end, as a present encouragement, in those momentary sections when our faith seems to weaken, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And this early Christian poem is a beautiful summary of the Christian life. Let's look at number four. Number four is in verse 15. And that's to be skilled in your work for Christ. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And Paul describes Timothy in this way as a skilled worker who's handling God's word in a way that has a good effect on others. He said, the ESV says rightly handling. The Greek word participle that's used here says correctly cutting. That's what it says. That's interesting, isn't it? So it's actually a medical image. It's, it's that God's word, it's like a surgeon's scalpel. It's like the most sophisticated medical instrument that we have 
In Hebrews 4, it says that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can slice in between the distinction of joint and marrow. It can cut in between your motivations. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we don't even know what our own motivations are. And yet God's word can cut right between that. And did you know, I'm sure you know, that we sometimes have things in our lives that we'd like to get rid of. But sometimes we don't know how. It's like a spiritual abscess and we want to get rid of it. It's like an ulcer in our soul or some cancerous growth in our soul, in our walk with God. And yet, how do we get rid of it? We can't will it out of being, but we need the spiritual surgery of God's word. But aren't you glad that he doesn't say, handle God's word like a baseball bat. Or handle God's word like a stick of dynamite. Or handle God's word in some way like, like a boulder that you would just drop on people. That's not faithful ministry. Faithful ministry is understanding God's word, hearing it and applying it so that it does surgery on us. Where we need it. And an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit does, even as hundreds of us are listening to the same sermon, the Holy Spirit can apply the word to where your soul needs surgery. And the person right next to you might need something different. And so he tells Timothy to be like a skilled surgeon, a skilled doctor handling God's word and avoid irreverent just chatter and we're sure that the image is a medical one because of what he says in verse 17 that people who who speak and talk without training who don't handle God's word well he says their talk spreads like gangrene that is a terrifying image now, I, I want you to know that I take great care in thinking of what kind of images I want to put on the wall. <laughs> and I had this really visceral image of gangrene and a set of three toes that were black and um, the necrosis of the tissue. I mean, you, I mean, I don't even have it up there. And I chose, because this is God's house and a house, a place of beauty, I chose not to put up the necrosis of, the, of those toes. And you can thank me afterward. But you can picture it, can't you? And I want you to know that ungodly chatter that's irreverent has that effect on you. And sometimes you've got to cut off dead tissue. And God's word will do that. But it will do that in a way that brings healing. God's word is alive it's active, and it is filled with not only truth, but examples. And God knows that sometimes we learn well by a story or an example. In verse 19, Paul says, God's firm foundation, that is of his word, stands. It bears this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The ESV puts this in quotation marks, even though there are no quotation marks in the original text. First century Greek has no way to indicate quotation marks. So why is it in quotation marks? It's in quotation marks because it's a quote from Numbers chapter 16. And 
the system in antiquity of quoting passages of the Bible, sometimes biblical writers tell you, oh, as it's written in Isaiah. But sometimes they just quote it. And Timothy, who knows the scriptures, we'll talk more about that next Sunday, he would recognize this as a quote. And it's a quote from number 16, which is a gripping chapter. It's a dramatic chapter, and it's a warning chapter. It's a chapter when, after we had left Egypt and we we're journeying through the wilderness, when we get to the place of number 16, there is a rebellion in the camp. And it's led by a man named Korah. And Korah's upset with Moses and Aaron. And he's upset because he said, is, does God only speak through you guys? It's sort of like a church power play. Is God just working through the pastors? Aren't we all pastors? I mean, doesn't God just talk through all of us? Aren't we all in charge? I mean, well, who do you think you are? And they come, they come after Moses and Aaron, whom God had set apart for a particular task. Now, it's true that we're a kingdom of priests and, and all called to serve him, but it's also true that some people are called to a specific calling. And Korah leads a group of people, and when Moses heard about this rebellion, and remember that the Bible says that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. That's sobering. And when Moses heard about this rebellion, this revolt, he fell on his face. And he said in number 16, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. That's what he said. And so Moses said, all right, you guys. It was Korah and others with him, and they took 250 people from the congregation. And Moses said, all right, everybody, get your, get your incense censer, and let's all just offer worship. And the Lord knows who is his. And as they got ready to offer their offering, Moses told the rest of the people to move away from Korah and his company. And he said, if they die in a normal way, God has not spoken through me. And as they got ready to offer their offering, the ground opened up, and Korah and all of his household perished. And it was a sobering moment. And it was a sobering moment. And the lesson for all of us, there's a warning for all of us in that, but there's also a lesson for disciple makers and spiritual leaders that the Lord knows who are his. And so you don't have to carry out vengeance. The Lord knows. Be faithful. Pour into others. All of God's word helps build our faith. That warning comes with a second admonition. Let all who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, he says. The last charge in this chapter and encouragement to us, starting in verse 21, is to be dedicated so that we can be useful to God. Paul uses the imagery of dishes. I don't know in your house how many sets of dishes that you have. We have two sets of dishes. And we have one set of dishes that we use every day. And we have another set of dishes that is so beautiful. It was a gift to us. And we only use that set of dishes maybe 
two or three times a year. It's really special and beautiful. And he uses the image of different sets of dishes in a household for different sets of use. And he urges Timothy to see himself as an honorable vessel. To cleanse yourself from what's dishonorable and to be a vessel for honorable use. And to set yourself like a dish, a plate that's cleaned off and is just ready for God to use. It's a beautiful and humbling image. When you separate from unclean things and you are set yourself apart as holy for God's use, you become useful to the master and you're ready for every good work. As some of you may remember, I mentioned our dear brother Frank Russell a few Sundays ago. I miss Frank. I cannot wait to see him again. I know what he's going to say when I walk into the New Jerusalem. I'm going to see him from a distance. He's going to look at me, and you know what he's going to say. He's going to say, praise the Lord! And uh, it's going to be good. And uh, I think of Frank on this verse as well, because Frank had this verse memorized, but he had it memorized in the King James And in the King James, it says, He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared for every good work. And I heard Frank say that often, meet for the master's use. And I didn't, to be honest, I didn't understand what he meant by that. Meat? I was thinking, like, am I a ribeye steak for God's use? And I never checked until this week looking at this because I made me think of Frank. I looked up in the King James. It's meat, M-E-E-T. Meat. And then I still didn't know what that meant. Do you know what that means? Meat is the old English word for useful or appropriate. So when you're, if you're, so whether it's you want to memorize this verse and just say I'm useful to God or you want to say I'm meat not the ribeye steak just but I am meat M-E-T-E-T for God's use I think of Frank as just always ready consecrated himself ready for God I remember him telling me one time that he was work he was a plumber and he came to this job site it was a multi-story apartment complex And something had gone terribly wrong with the fire suppression system in the building. When I say terribly wrong, Frank said when he walked in the lobby, there was just water coming down through the ceiling all over the place. Frank said he took one look at that and he just gave this profound statement to the people who owned the building. He just said, shut it down. Turn off the water. We've got a major problem here. And he worked on that for a long time. And he was trying to share Christ and mentor this group of young apprentice plumbers who were with him on the job. And uh, at one point, he rounded a corner and he tripped over something and he fell down the stairs. And as he was falling down the stairs, he was falling down the stairs and he just shouted out, praise the Lord, as he was going down the stairs. And then he told me that as he was falling down the stairs, what was going through his mind was that he was having the chance to share Christ with all these young guys and he hoped that he didn't land in such a way that he wouldn't be able to continue on the job. 
That's somebody who's just ready. Always ready. And that's what this passage charges us to do. Passing the baton means discipling others who will disciple others. The growth of the kingdoms in our grandchildren of faith. And so I want to ask you this morning, all of you, I want to ask you, who are you discipling? I want to ask you that in a serious way. Can you name the person that you're discipling right now? And if you aren't discipling someone, then I want to challenge you to take a next step. Last year, we had 20 people who were actively discipling others. And we prayed for this year that we'd be able to grow that by 50%. That we'd have 30 active, reproducing, discipling relationships. And, you know, we've reached that goal and actually gone further. But we're getting ready to start another ministry year with a new goal. And I want to ask you, who are you discipling? If you're not yet discipling someone, how do you get started? Let me suggest a couple of things. The first is the pattern of Jesus, which is prayerful selection. It's the disciple maker who takes the initiative here. It's prayer. Jesus spent the night in prayer with the Father about who the 12 should be. Can you imagine that? All night in prayer. And can you imagine God the Father telling God the Son, I want you to ask Peter, Andrew, all the 12. And Jesus, the Son of God, saying, okay, I'll, I'll give my time in this world mainly to these 12 men. Incredible. When you pray and ask God sincerely, who are you calling me to disciple, then take the initiative to invite them. Invite them to meet together, breakfast, lunch, coffee in the evening. Hey, can I stop by? Let's just talk and get to know each other and just come out with it and say, God's put you on my heart. Would you be willing to enter into a discipling relationship? And it's very encouraging when you Pursue that with prayerful selection that you know God's at work when you meet with that person and they say, I'd love that. And it's very encouraging when you meet with someone and they say, I've been praying for that. And so you agree and then commit to meet. Now, some people meet every week. Uh, the, the men that I'm discipling, we found for us it works better if we meet like every other week. But then select a tool that you will use. Many of us at Kenwood use this tool. It's a proven tool. It's uh, written with humility. And it is wonderful. And it's called Discipleship Essentials. And it's just a workbook that is easy to use. And uh, I was looking at for an image of it uh, in preparation for the sermon. And when I looked for an image of this cover, what else popped up was all of these other Christian organizations who also use this. And I was like, that's cool. The first one I pulled up was InterVarsity's Campus Ministry for the Nursing Fellowship in the United States. And they're like, yeah, we use this. And I was like, 
We use that. I know Greg Ogden. I've met him. He's a godly man and a skilled discipler. So you don't have to invent this. So I, I commend this tool. Others meet and just go through a chapter of the gospel and talk about it and apply it. But the key is consistency and building the life of Christ and understanding of the gospel. And if you're being discipled right now, I want to challenge you, whether you're in week one or month three or year two of that, wherever you are in your journey, I want, to, I want to, you to ask, who am I getting ready to disciple? This is what Jesus has told us to be about. And Paul emphasizes this with Timothy. And I want you to know that I spent almost the first 20 years of ministry not doing this. And now I am hooked on doing it. And I've been doing it now for the last two years. And I love it. Pastor Scott came back in the office uh, recently. And he, he walked back in and he was kind of glowing. Kind of a Burnsian glow. And uh, a good, in a good way. And uh, I said, well, you know, what did you do? And he said, I just came back from this discipling relationship. And he looked at me with a Bernsian smile, just a little restrained. He said, I could do that all day. It's just so satisfying to see growth in faith. So remember where we started. Have you heard God's voice in any way this morning? And are you willing to obey him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that you have given to us. Jesus, you are our reward. You are the place where our devotion rightly belongs. You satisfy our souls. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are enough for all of us and that what we need is found in you and you alone. And so, Lord, we just uh, express back to you a desire to follow you, not to turn back to find you all sufficient and help us, Lord, to be about disciple making as a church and help us grow in that and remove from us whatever fears hold us back. We love you, Lord, and we desire to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.